us to Genesis chapter 24. My wife has been out of town uh, all week taking children up to uh, Ridgehaven Camp. She'll be coming back uh, this evening. And with her being gone last night and Molly also was sleeping over at a friend's house, uh, after the pool party I got home and got too much time to think and ended up uh, editing my sermon like I've never edited it before. Uh, I cut it by two-thirds. So what does that mean for our time to, today? Yeah, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, I guess it means that we won't be here as long as we would have been. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your Word. It is um, the bread of life for us. Uh, help us to feast upon it. Help us to, uh, by Your Word, grow up in our salvation. Help us through it to see our Lord Jesus Christ, to build our faith and our trust in Him. We ask this in His name. Amen. Genesis 24 is 67 verses long. Uh, as I already mentioned, we're not going to look at all 67 verses. But to give you an overview... Genesis 24 is about an engagement, about how Isaac met Rebekah. If this chapter of the Bible were made into a movie, it probably would have been a chick flick. Uh, now you guys, before you check out and stop paying attention, uh, let me go ahead and encourage you. There's very little romance in this uh, in this chapter. In fact, Isaac and Rebecca never even saw each other until the last chapter. I'm sorry, the last verse of the chapter. And even though this chapter is about an engagement, there's several principles that uh, will be relevant for all of our lives. For those of you who are yet to be married, uh, there are principles for you in how to choose a spouse. For those of you who are needing God's guidance in your life, there's important principles on how to make godly choices. Most importantly, this passage will help us determine in what or in whom we are placing our trust. I don't know if you've noticed, I hope you have, as we've moved through Genesis, especially as we have, uh, when we got to chapter 12 with the life of Abraham, uh, every chapter has, uh, the main point of every chapter has really focused in on this idea of trusting in God. God is very intent on all of us knowing if we trust in Him, why we should trust in Him. How we can trust in Him. By examining the lives of the people that we're in, we encounter in Genesis, especially Abraham, uh, God has given us living examples of people who beautifully trusted in God, in examples of others who failed miserably, 
And as we look at life after life here in Genesis, the question we are to, to, to ask of ourselves is, are we trusting in God? The way I had organized this passage before I, I took my, um, my scissors to it was we were going to look at Abraham. Then we were going to look at Abraham's servant. Then we were going to look at, uh, at Laban. Then we were going to look at Rebekah and, and examine their faith in God. Examine what they were trusting in. Uh, this morning, however, we're only going to look at Abraham. Uh, he's the first person we encounter here in Genesis 24. Uh, his wife has died. He knows that it won't be long until he follows her to the grave. So he's intent on putting everything in order. His mind is especially occupied with his son Isaac. You may not have realized this, but here in this passage, Isaac here is now nearly 40 years old. And so, and he's not yet married. So Abraham, what he did was he called his chief servant, uh, who was in charge of all of Abraham's possessions, and he told his chief servant, "Go and find Isaac a wife." Now, the name of Abraham's uh, chief servant back in Genesis 15 was uh, Eliezer of Damascus. I don't really know if this is still Eliezer. Uh, or if it's another person, I assume it's Eliezer uh, that we uh, encounter here in Genesis chapter 24. Regardless of whether it was Eliezer or or some other person who was serving as his chief uh, as his chief servant, Abraham has a great deal of trust in the in this man in in his servant because Abraham. Is, going, is instructing his servant to travel nearly 1,000 miles over into Mesopotamia to find a wife for Isaac from among Abraham's relatives. So hear the Word of God. I'm going to read Genesis 24, verses 1 through 10. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, uh, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my own son, for my own son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. 
So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Abraham is very concerned, you can see from this passage, that his son not take us a wife uh, from among the Canaanites. The Canaanites, as we've already uh, seen in weeks past, their religion was perverse. It was twisted. It was uh, highly sexualized. And therefore, their religion, the religion of the Canaanites, was under the curse of God. So Abraham made his servant swear an oath that uh, he would go with all diligence to the land of Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and find from Abraham's relatives a wife for his son Isaac. Now to swear this oath, uh, the servant had to place his hand uh, under Abraham's thigh uh, near what one of the commentators, this is their wording, near Abraham's powers of procreation. Um, the scholars have different reasons as to why they use such a gesture. This just tells me that they are not completely sure why this gesture was used other than being a very serious oath. I can say that I'm very glad that we use handshakes and contracts in our day, but we don't uh, use those, those types of gestures to fulfill an oath or make an oath. But this oath represents a tremendous testimony of faith in God by Abraham. Now before we look at this testimony of faith, uh, I want to pause for a second and I want to speak to those who are unmarried among us. Uh, Throughout Scripture, God gives warning after warning to believers about marrying unbelievers. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the Apostle Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. And then there's the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. The Scripture says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? God's Word is clear. And we could look at many, many Old Testament passages as well. To marry an unbeliever means that you would be, of necessity, rejecting God's Word. And if you're rejecting His Word in reality, you're rejecting God Himself. If you were unwilling to listen to God in this matter, then I doubt you would listen to me. But if you are intent on marrying an unbeliever, and I don't know of anybody in the congregation that is, uh, that is moving along this path, uh, but it's still something uh, to, good to address from time to time, uh, because once that path has been established, then it's a lot harder to uh, get people to turn back off of that path if they're going down that path. Um, but uh, if any of you are 
intent on marrying an unbeliever or become intent on marrying an unbeliever. Here's what I would like to do. Not only direct you to these Scriptures and other Scriptures, but I'd also like to have you sit down with a person who is married an unbeliever. I have sat across from many spouses over my time in ministry and have uh, listened to that spouse just weep their eyes out because they are so broken hearted that their soulmate has a completely different world view than themselves. Has a completely different set of priorities than themselves. That has a completely different set of priorities for their children. Um, in fact, I mean, some, some of the most tragic times of sitting with believers uh, as they are as they are suffering, has been with unbe- with believing spouses who have unbelieving husbands. In my first church, there was a woman that was so in despair that she would come to me and she would say, God does not want me to be married to this man. And I would say, oh really? Well, um... You know, you should have been obedient to the Lord a long time ago when, whenever you got married. And uh, so then she would go to different... She would work her way through all the elders of the church, go to the senior pastor, and she would give, get the same answer over and over again. But she was just so brokenhearted that her, her husband was an unbeliever. And... Uh, and I've, I've, I've listened to so many other men and women that just are brokenhearted over their spouse, not loving the Lord, not knowing the Lord, over disharmony in the home. Um, and it goes on and on. It, so let me warn you. Or let me first of all be as clear as I can. God's Word says an, a believer may not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Secondly, let me warn you that it, it is hard enough to honor the Lord in your marriage. It is, it, is, it is hard enough to give yourself to your spouse unconditionally, uh, sacrificially, when you're both believers. It is exponentially more difficult than you are married to an unbeliever. Do not do it. I understand Abraham's earnestness in sending his uh, in sending his servant off to his relatives to find a wife for his son, because Abraham knows that if Isaac marries one of these Canaanite women, then Isaac will most likely begin uh, worshiping uh, according to his wife's uh, practices rather than worshiping the true and living God. Now regarding Abraham's testimony of faith in God that is so powerful here in this passage, I see um, his faith most clearly here in this in his response to to his servant's question in verses five through nine. Uh, Abraham says, "You need to go find a wife for my 
for my son and his, and his servant is not trying to be obstinate, but he's asking a legitimate question. He says in verse 5, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to, um, to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? In other words, take Isaac back to Mesopotamia? Abraham said to him, verse 6, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Abraham is absolutely, resolutely committed to believing God's promises. First, Abraham said that Isaac must not leave the, the land of Canaan because God had promised the land of Canaan uh, to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, and his servant knew that there may be the possibility that he finds a wife for Isaac and she refuses to come. And so Abraham said, by no means should his son uh, move to the city of Nahor to be with her. Um, Abraham is being driven here by his, his trust in God's promises. Verse 7, I just read it, but it bears reading again. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. So, he is so resolute. Um, in trusting in God's promises. He says, God's going to lead you. In fact, He'll give you an angel to lead you on your way. I think this is pure faith coming out of Abraham's mouth. I don't know that God said to Abraham, go, go to your relatives and find a, son, find a wife for your son. Uh, rather, I think Abraham is simply taking hold of God's promises with both hands. God had promised him that he would inhabit the land of Canaan. God had promised him that he would have many descendants. Abraham knew that he, he was not to find a wife uh, for his son from among the Canaanites. And so Abraham, by faith, is reasoning. And he's connecting the dots. Therefore, what God is telling me to do, he reasons. I should go to my relatives and find a, a wife for my son. And so it's faith that is driving him to this conclusion. I've been there in that, in that place many times in my own life. I'm sure you have as well. Where everything, every, all your worldly reasons um, and all your desires say, do this. But then you have a promise of God over here on the other hand that is completely contrary to everything that you desire to do, everything that seems reasonable for you to do, and you're at a crossroads and you say, what am I going to do? And you choose to follow God's promises even though it goes against your reason. Um, you don't know if you're making the right decision, but you pray and you move forward. 
In my experience, these tend to be the best and most life-changing moments in my life. You need guidance on how on what God wants you to do. Well, find the promise. Pray about that promise. And then, with all your heart, go after that promise. I think we tend to live small lives uh, as Christians because we live by sight. We make choices by sight. We seek guidance by sight, by reason. Um, And maybe the choices we make are not actually sinful um, per se, but then... They really are if we're not living by faith. We worship a sovereign God. We worship a God who is in control of every circumstance in all of our lives. Every circumstance in all of the universe. And this God loves you so much that He gave His only begotten Son to save you from your sins. He gave His only begotten Son that He might adopt you as as His own dear child. He loves you so much that He has said that He is working all things together for good. In other words, if you need guidance for direction in your life, take into account God's sovereign love for you. Make choices that are rooted in faith rather than in sight. Choose, make decisions, seek guidance based on faith and trust in God rather than your own worldly reason. Faith does have its reasons. Abraham was grounded in faith and trust and then he reasoned. I need to go send my servant to find a son for my I mean find a wife for my son. It's not just sticking your head in the sand and um, and rejecting reason and doing and, and, and going off in faith without thinking. That's not what we're saying at all. But what what Abraham did and what we are called to do is trust wholeheartedly in our God. And live by faith. God is for you. Who can be against you? Hey, if you fall on your face from time to time, at least you're falling in the right direction. If you are seeking to live by faith rather than by sight. And so Abraham realizes that his servant could be right. Maybe the woman won't return. To, to come and be his his son's wife. And so he acknowledges that in verse 8. Um, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Well, if he sends his servant to find a wife for his son she refuses to come and he and Abraham refuses to send his his son into Mesopotamia what does that mean well essentially what it means is Abraham is saying so be it if she refuses to come 
thinking, maybe my son doesn't need to get married. In other words, Abraham is willing for his descendants to be cut off rather than allow Isaac to leave the land that God had promised him or to allow Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. If Isaac could not have a wife from his relatives um, and remain in the land of Canaan, it seems to me that Abraham is saying he should have no wife at all. It reminds me of Genesis 22 where God said to Abraham, Go offer your son, your only son, your son whom you love. Offer him as a sacrifice. What's happening there? Well, Abraham obeyed. What's going through Abraham's mind? Well, we know from the book of Hebrews what's going on through Abraham's mind. He is living by faith. And then he is reasoning by faith. His reasons were, God has told me to do this. God loves me. I love God. He is working His best for me. If He's telling me to do this, it must be for my best. God is going to raise my son from the dead. That's what Hebrews says was Abraham's reasoning. And so Abraham trusted God and he went to offer his son as a sacrifice without questioning God, without hesitating. Remember how I said, how I noted from the Scripture, he got up first thing in the morning to set off how I would have slept in that, that day? Abraham is living by faith. Abraham is the father of the faithful. So why would Abraham be willing to forego descendants in order to obey God? I think the reason is that Abraham is more content to trust in God than to gain earthly blessings of having many descendants. Or to put it another way, I think Abraham simply loved God more than any earthly blessings. Now, Abraham was a slow study. Uh, we had him taking a step of faith uh, in Genesis 12, Genesis 13. He messes up, falls on his face. Uh, Genesis 14, he takes a step of faith. Genesis 15, he takes a step of faith. And then he steps back, and, and that's the way his, his faith goes. And so he, he falls on his face. He takes a step. But all the while, God is pulling him up. God is calling, is teaching him to grow in his faith and his trust in God. Uh, I've used this illustration before. That uh, oftentimes the Christian life is, is, is like being on a yo-yo. You're going up and down. You're falling on your face. You have the mountaintop experience. And it's, it's, it's like a yo-yo. But it's like a yo-yo in the hand of a man walking up the steps. At the time when you're falling on your face and then you're repenting and you're turning back to the Lord, it feels like you're just you're falling further and further behind. But through it all, God is causing you to grow in your faith and trust in Him. I think Abraham here in willing to forego descendants because he is so um, eager to trust in God's promises that he is showing us the true nature of faith. 
I think we've turned faith into something that it is not. We've turned faith into basically an intellectual decision. And so we ask people if we want to know if they're a Christian, have you made a have you made a decision for Jesus? Have you walked an aisle? Have you prayed a prayer? And really, the question that needs to be asked is not whether you've made a decision. The question that needs to be asked, the question that really reveals faith, is do you love Jesus? Are you satisfied with Him alone? Are you willing to forsake all that you might have Him? Just like the parable of the man who found a treasure in a, in a field and then he joyfully went and sold everything he had in order that he could buy that field. Or like what Jesus said, if you love your life here, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ, you will gain it. I think that's Abraham's outlook on life. I'm willing to lose my descendants because I trust in God. I'm willing to lose anything and everything because I trust in God. But he knew that, that God was going to give to him much more than he could ever ask or imagine. Christ tells us that we have to lose our life in order to gain it. The life He's talking about us losing is this worldly life. And then we gain eternal life. Alright, since I, uh, I know I'm a little past 12, but there's this this uh, thought that's been turning over in my head, and I'm, I'm going to bring it into the sermon even though it's not in my notes. I, I read Jeremiah a couple of weeks ago, and in Jeremiah, God was was upbraiding the, the, the Jews for rejecting the living water that He provided for them. And He said, you're going... And, and he called it wicked. He said, what you're doing is you've gone to a, a cistern, like a well uh, that is broken and it has no water in it, and you are eating in the dirt because you do not want the living water that I am so eager to give you. And he said it is a wicked thing. And I think that... That is the picture I have in my mind as, as, uh, as I think about Abraham. We are so intent to eat in dirt, to eat in worldliness, to eat in things that won't satisfy, to try and satisfy our things that won't fill us, that, won't, that, that will not help us to grow spiritually. We, we so want the things of this world. And God says it's just like eating dirt when He offers us living water. True faith says, Jesus, I want You more than anything. All these things that, that vie for my attention. How does the hymn 
uh, him go. All these the things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what it means to live by faith. To love Jesus. To be satisfied with Him alone. To trust in Him and nothing else. We don't have altar calls here at Westminster. Because we don't think that it is a physical act that you do to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, it is God's gift of grace to you. And maybe you've been sitting here for weeks, months, years, and at one point you were only loving yourself, only loving this world. And over time, you've come to to love Christ so much that you don't really care about this world that much. Well, that's faith. That's trust in Jesus. You may not have walked an aisle. You may not have prayed the sinner's prayer. But you have faith in Christ because He has worked that faith in you. There are so many people, and it's so heartbreaking, who are sitting in churches all over America, all over the world, who think just because they've walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, made a decision, that they're going to heaven. And their hearts do not love Jesus at all. And they are filled with worldliness rather than Christ. And you can't talk them out of it. Because I prayed the prayer. I, I, I walked the aisle. By the same token, let me ask you, this morning, do you love the Lord Jesus? Is He the, the desire of your heart? That's the nature of true faith. That's what we see here in Abraham. Are you satisfied with Christ alone? Let's pray together. Our Father, I imagine many here in this congregation are doing exactly what I'm doing, recounting all the ways that I love the world rather than Christ and repenting of them. Father, I pray that You would help us to be satisfied in Christ alone. Father, I pray that uh, You would help us through the grace of repentance, through the grace of faith, to turn away from those things that um, we try to satisfy ourselves with that really will not satisfy us at all. Father, I pray that there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that You would give them the grace of faith and repentance and love for Jesus. I pray in His name. Amen.